I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Keith Law Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. This is episode 62. I am your host, Keith Law, and my guest today, I'm very excited. I have Dr. Peter Hotez, who is one of my favorite follows on Twitter for his insight and indefatigable nature in fighting anti-science and anti-vaccine folks. We will talk about the state of the pandemic, what to say to folks who aren't getting vaccinated, and how baseball and other sports might respond better to the pandemic going forward, and plus a little bit about his baseball fandom. Before I get into that, since the last show, I did do my uh, favorite annual feature of readers, a 10-year redraft, where I go back 10 years, in this case, back to 2011, redraft the class. What would the first 30 picks possibly be like if... We knew then what we know today, and obviously that could even continue to change going forward. I also look at the picks from the first round of that year who just didn't pan out with a little bit of an explanation of what might have gone wrong for them. I'd also like to mention with Father's Day coming up very soon, if you're looking for a gift for the father somewhere in your life, may I humbly recommend one of my own books, Smart Baseball or The Inside Game, which are now both out in paperback. Inside Game just came out in paperback this April. Smart Baseball has been out for a few years. You can find them on bookshop.org or anywhere you buy your books. Well, now it is my pleasure to be joined by the great Dr. Peter Hotez. He okay, it would take me an hour and a half to read his entire CV here. But what you need to know is he is an internationally recognized physician scientist who focuses on neglected tropical diseases and vaccine development. He is also one of my favorite advocates for science and someone who spends a lot of time on social media, especially on Twitter, where you can find him at Peter Hotez, H-O-T-E-Z fighting anti-science and anti-vaccine people. He's also written two great books. One is called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. And the second, his more recent one, was is called Preventing the Next Pandemic. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for joining me. Okay, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. So we'll we'll talk baseball in a little bit. Okay. Yeah, that was part of the that was part of the deal, right? Yeah, it's a quid pro quo here. But what I really want to do in life is drink beer and watch baseball. But um, yes, yes, I, it's at least this year we can do that again. Right? No, it's that's big. It's a big deal. That's a big. Deal. I haven't been. I haven't been seen. I haven't seen the Astros yet live. But hopefully that will happen soon. Yeah, I went uh, 13 months myself between actual baseball games, something very close to it, which of course has never right. happened, in, not right. since I was right. a child. Right. So, well, let's talk a little pandemic first. Um, you have been, you know, you are an, a must follow on Twitter uh, for basically all things COVID-19. What is your feeling on sort of the state of the United States specifically? Obviously, the global situation is very different, but with the United States passing the 50% mark in terms of vaccinations, where do you feel like we are now and what do you see as maybe the bigger challenges for the country coming up in the next few months? Yeah, well, thanks. I think the big challenge is I'm worried about um, the complacency and everyone being very self-congratulatory and 
and there's a lot of heterogeneity in different parts of the country. So I'm, I'm worried we're morphing into two COVID nations very much along partisan lines and geographic lines. So while the North, you know, New England, mid-Atlantic states are now reaching over 70% of the population getting at least a single dose, not even just the adults, but the whole population getting a single, single dose and in moving towards full vaccination, um, I'm really excited that the Northeast is gonna vaccinate its way out of this in California, New Mexico, a few other states, but down here in the South, we're doing terribly. We're vaccinating about half the rate of, uh, and now, you know, we've, with some, my colleagues at Houston Methodist Hospital have found a number of very worrisome variants here. So I'm concerned about the summer. Um, if you remember this time last year, we are at our nadir, our lowest point in the epidemic. And then you know, we opened up things prematurely and we had that horrible summer surge across Texas and the Southern states. Um, uh, that was our second peak after the New York peak. And I worry we could revisit that. So you mentioned some of these worrisome variants. The one that I see the most in news coverage right now is this Delta variant. And it seems like that is, um, uh, I think I read that it's actually become the most prevalent variant in the United Kingdom so far. Is that one of them that you see as maybe a major threat to the United States, particularly if we remain complacent on vaccinations? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely one of them. You know, in the UK, you had the original lineages and then you had the B117 variant that dominated British Isles. And then now you've got this Delta variant, affectionately known as B1617.2. They're also memorable, um, <laughs> uh, taking over the UK. So, you know, the, the Brits are telling us what's going to happen because what's happened in the UK has happened in the US. So we have to believe that that's a real possibility. So, and, and, and again, among, and it looks as though those who've been fully vaccinated with two doses of the uh, either the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna or the Pfizer-BioNTech do really well against this um, Delta variant. That's good news. The bad news is single dose immunization doesn't do a lot. So that's so that means that if you're not vaccinated now, um, remember from the time you get your first dose of the mRNA vaccines, either Moderna or Pfizer-BioNTech, it's the first dose, then three to four weeks for the second dose, depending on which one you get. And then it's another week or two after that. So if you haven't been vaccinated now, you're five to six weeks before you're fully immunized. And now's the time to do it, because if you start seeing this big surge in the summer, you don't want to be screwing around waiting for six weeks to be fully immunized. And, and I worry that's going to happen. And in addition, we're seeing the P1 variant around and i just had an article today in the in the new york times written with my colleague albert co from yale that looks at the possibility that the p1 variant may be responsible for a lot of pediatric cases in brazil so there's even though there's a lot of reason to be optimistic um if you're fully vaccinated and get high vaccination rates there's a significant part of the country right now that's not vaccinated nearly at the levels it could be. And I think the South is a worry. Also, Idaho and Wyoming are doing poorly as well. But but for that summer surge, it's the South. That gives me a lot of pause for concern. You mentioned, obviously, this has become highly and absurdly politicized. Uh, but just from a practical perspective, you know, just in my little time trying to deal with people who are anti-vaccine on social media, there are, I've always felt there, there are those you'll simply never reach, right? They are so locked into their beliefs. 
we probably won't change their minds, but that there is a larger group potentially who are vaccine, people use the term vaccine hesitant. Maybe they just don't have all the information, but how do you feel like, whether it's you personally or what do you advise people to do when trying to talk to those people who who might be swayed, the folks who are not vaccinated yet, or especially, I know a, a family here where they have not vaccinated, they haven't vaccinated themselves, they haven't vaccinated their two eligible teenage children, but they're not anti-vaccine. The children have had childhood immunizations. They're just hesitant about this particular vaccine. Um, and I, I feel like that may be a large part of the group that we need to convert to attack this problem that you're just describing. So what do you do? What do you suggest we do with those? Yeah, things? I think I think you're absolutely right. I think certainly historically, most people who haven't received a vaccine are not deeply dug in. They're just so inundated with the garbage, with misinformation, because they dominate the internet, um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. It's amazing. We have to have an organization called Center for Countering Digital mm -hmm. Hate, isn't it? Um, estimates that there are 58 million followers on the 12 leading anti-vaccine social media sites. So that gives you a, a sense of how pervasive they've, they've become. So, you know, in the past, you know, if I've been having, if I've had access I can counter the misinformation and talk people, you know, explain to people and they and they get vaccinated or they get their kids vaccinated. I think the two trend latest trends though are are giving me additional worry. And that is people now are tying tying their political allegiance or identity to not getting vaccinated. That's new. Um mm -hmm. well it's it's been building. It's been building since around 2015. Unfortunately, it started here in Texas with the health freedom, medical freedom movement. It started with the far right wing of the Republican Party, the Tea Party and, and political action committees formed down here. And, and and it was all around, you can't tell me what to do about my kid. It, it, it morphed from the concerns about vaccines causing autism, because I like to think my book had some impact on diffusing some of that, debunking some of that. But then to re-energize, they tied themselves to political extremism on the far right. And that's been percolating along and here in Texas and elsewhere in the South. But then in the last year or so, it now glommed on protests against social distancing and masks. And so a person's in this twisted way, their allegiance to the the Republican Party or the GOP has become not getting vaccinated, and and never used to be that way. I mean, there was never anything anti-science about being Republican, right? I mean, Eisenhower started NASA, and and uh, and George W. Bush started PEPFAR and the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So I don't know where this is coming from, but it's causing uh, a lot of damage, especially among young people. So it's young people that are. You know, holding out this kind of defiance and 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 reciting a lot of incorrect information, such as that if you're young and healthy and go to the gym, you don't need to get vaccinated. And I explained that being young and healthy and go to the gym is a really really good thing, but it doesn't give you virus neutralizing antibodies uh, that will save your life. And that's what vaccination does. And and the message that I've been trying to send is these new variants are not your father's COVID nineteen. They they are causing serious illness among young people. And the narrative that it exclusively affects old people is simply was never true. And now it's uh, uh, especially concerning now with the variants. And, and that's who I worry we're going to see a lot. We're already seeing an uptick in hospitalizations and serious illness among young people. The UK is reporting this now at the 
the with the B one six one seven two variant, the Delta variant, a lot of adolescents getting sick. So this is this is the most important message right now. Is uh, especially in the South, where where Keith under ten percent of adolescents, twelve to seventeen, have been vaccinated in uh, I think in in Louisiana, Mississippi. Uh, Alabama right now, and there's a real vulnerability there, uh, both for themselves, for the region, and ultimately for the country. And for folks like that, and I, I don't know to, you know to what extent it's the parents, the kids. Do the kids not want to get vaccinated? I think it's I think it's the parents mm-hmm. aren't getting vaccinated, and it filters right down to the kids. Gotcha. Now, now, do I have any evidence for that? No, that's 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 my guess. So I should qualify that. So. One thing I see a lot and have heard a little bit from from people I know, you know, I live in a bit of a bubble where most people I know are vaccinated. My daughter, literally the day they announced she was eligible, she's 15, demanded that I take her to one of the Delaware state sites to go get her vaccinated right away. And she was there texting all her friends, come here, there are appointments. Right, so, right. You, right. Know, I, we, you know, this is great. I said, good, good let's make more of you. But one thing I keep hearing is that these vaccines are experimental, that we don't know what the long-term consequences are. I, I understand that's not true. But what arguments do you offer to people who try to bring that up? Because it seems like a very common anti-vax trope right now. Yeah, it is. And that's exactly what it is. You hit on it. It's an anti-vax trope. And, and remember, these disinformation groups, the 58 million um, that mm-hmm. the Center for Continuing Digital Hate talks about, you know, they've got a certain laundry list of fake stuff that they put out there, you know, that it causes infertility, that, um, you don't young people don't need it. But another big one is that they're experimental and therefore not adequately tested for safety. Well, it's not true. First of all, um, I've been working, I mean, in addition to our neglected disease vaccines, I've been working on coronavirus vaccines for the last decade. Our center for Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development developed SARS and MERS vaccines. And the idea behind it was we were able to show that the spike protein is the soft underbelly of the virus, how you deliver the spike protein, how you induce virus neutralizing antibodies, why you need high levels of virus neutralizing antibodies. All of that fed into the vaccine development program from Operation Warp Speed. I think the problem was, um, so the point is the timelines for these vaccines is about the same as any other vaccines and the size of the clinical trials is the same. I think the problems are a lot of the messaging was horrible. I mean, first of all, calling it Operation Warp Speed, I don't know what they were thinking. That was, <laughs> that was I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, so, and, but, and I think the other, the other piece to this was, the press releases from the CEOs of the pharma companies. You know, what, yeah. I, what I try to explain is when a CEO writes a press release, they're not writing it for you or for me, they're writing it for their shareholders and they right. tend to spectacularize their accomplishments. And and although it wasn't intentional, I think, and it had this, the, the collateral damage of getting people very worried that how can these things be safe if they arose out of nowhere? Well, they didn't, but but that was a lot of the messaging. And the and the truth is, the FDA, in addition to the fact that this is that this is an R and D program over the last ten years, the FDA worked overtime to ensure that the emergency use authorization process faithfully replicated the full approval process. The the and if you remember, the president President Trump was quite angry that it wasn't done before the election. Well, that's because they were holding the line to make certain that it, they had all their I's dotted, T's crossed to make certain that was safe. And 
And that was um, that was not easy, you know, for Stephen Hahn, who was then FDA director, to do that. But it was important that he did. I think the only difference is when you look at the emergency use process, it's not full licensure yet because the emergency use authorization looked at two months of safety and efficacy data. And that's because if you waited a full year of safety and efficacy data, when you were losing 3,000 American lives every day at that point, I mean, the, the loss of life would have, it's already is catastrophic, but imagine it could have been much worse than 600,000 Americans losing their lives. That was the reason for it. But remember now, uh, we now have a full year of safety and efficacy data, which is the same as the full approval process. And now we're applying for full approval. And in the interim, the FDA and CDC put out a very elaborate system of pharmacovigilance to pick up any rare safety signals. And it worked, right? They picked up mm-hmm. the, the cerebral thrombotic event, which is extremely rare in the, in the adenovirus va- vaccine, the J&J on this side of the Atlantic and the AstraZeneca on the other side. It's sort of proof of concept that there's the safety monitoring worked. And so people should feel really comfortable uh, getting vaccinated. I think the FDA and CDC really, you know, uh, did an extraordinary job. And the problem is that's not a 30 second soundbite. I mean, it takes, right. <laughs> how long have we been talking about this now? If you, you know, <laughs> 10, 15 minutes. And that, that's, that's the hard part. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So it seems like most baseball teams, if they haven't gone to full capacity, obviously Texas Rangers up in the Metroplex, they did from the start. But if we're not at full capacity, everyone's going to be very soon. And I believe that's going to be the case for most minor league facilities too. Should we be concerned as fans, as somebody who I go to a lot of games or I will go to a lot more games now that there will be more, it'll be easier to go. There'll be more um, availability. Should there be concern or is it because it's an outdoor event that it is less of a concern. Because I understand there are very few documented cases of mass spread of the virus outdoors so far. Right. So it depends on the ballpark. So if you're <laughs> if you're in Fen and not, now I'm an Astros fan, so it's hard for me to say this. <laughs> but if you're in Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium, le- level of transmission in the Boston, New York area is going to be very low this summer. A high mm-hmm. percentage of vaccinated people. So yes, you can feel comfortable going to the ball game and bringing your kids to the ball game as as well. I think mm-hmm. the problem is going to be in um, particularly in it, um, Minute Maid Park, right? Which or any indoor stadium where if the level of transmission doesn't come down, um, and and we've got the variants here, then you might have to be more cautious. If you're fully vaccinated, it should be okay. If you're not, you may have to rethink this, and and that's that that's the reality. So um, I'm kind of right now. Transmission looks pretty good in Texas, and so I wouldn't have a problem bringing uh, my kids to the game. But we'll have to see how 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 that if that uptick uh, continues. Now um, we just had a little bit of an uptick today in in Texas, and we'll just have to follow that. Would you like to see? And this doesn't have to be just Major League Baseball. It's just obviously that's the sport I cover. But sports leagues, 
do anything different, change their policies on encouraging players or staff? Well, it's hard for them to mandate for the players be vaccinated because they're unionized, obviously, but other staffers or press coming in where, for example, Major League Baseball will now allow press onto the field in some limited circumstances, but you have to show that you're fully vaccinated, which I'm fine with. I am fully vaccinated, so it doesn't affect me. Yeah, I think, I think if you're vaccinated, it's fine. I think the question's going to be, do we still need to do routine testing? Mm-hmm. If if you've been fully vaccinated, and so this this is an interesting problem. If you remember, a few weeks back, there were a bunch of Yankees that were New York Yankees that were um, mm-hmm. put in um, isolation because yeah. they tested positive and they were vaccinated. Here's what I think may be going on: even if you're if you're fully vaccinated, you're not only are protected against severe illness, but you're protected against, and if you become infected, against asymptomatic transmission and 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 there's a traumatic reduction in virus shedding mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you still can't get the virus but you're shedding so little virus you're probably not transmitting it to other people so then the question is well if you're fully vaccinated why are we testing because you still could be pcr positive but it doesn't have any meaning mm-hmm. and that's where we need a more some more cdc guidance you know if i i think you know, looking at the data that I, we have so far, I'm not sure that I would continue doing routine testing if everybody's been vaccinated. Just, just, just stop it, you know, because it's it's not telling you useful information. That's particularly interesting because my uh, three do- three daughters, the oldest is vaccinated, the other two are too young to be vaccinated. The school has still required testing. They've had every three weeks they've had to submit. We'd have had to submit for each of them evidence of a negative test. Well, for my oldest. Um, she's vaccinated. So would we, obviously school year's ending, so it's academic now, but would we continue doing that? And it sounds like your argument is, right. no, it's actually no longer necessary or, or even useful to do so. Yeah, yeah, from the data that I've seen it, but you know, I'm always reluctant to get too far ahead of my skis from the CDC <laughs> because sometimes they have information, access to information that's not, pub- that's not public that I haven't seen. And so, um, but hopefully they'll make that recommendation soon because if, you know, if you can imagine how complicated it's going to be if we still have to do that level of testing in the school year. So I'd like to think, for instance, in the fall, um, if all the kids are vaccinated, you know, say the middle school and high school, if all the mm-hmm. kids are vaccinated, teachers are vaccinated, staffs vaccinated, bus drivers are vaccinated, just stop testing and, and you'll do well um, mm-hmm. and have a very productive school year. And 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 if we're vaccinated at that level, then um, there'll be so little transmission that even the little kids, you know, can do really well during the school year and, and open up in-person classrooms for the elementary schools. But again, it all, you know, the, the piece that people don't adequately message is not just about getting vaccinated to dramatically reduce your likelihood of getting sick or going to the hospital, but it's about getting everybody vaccinated to halt community transmission. And and quite honestly, we didn't know about that performance feature of the vaccine till later on. It first mm-hmm. became apparent in Israel, which was the first country to really um, vaccinate its full population completely. And then we saw it was halting asymptomatic transmission. And then the light bulb went off that, oh my God, we can not only is this going to keep people out of the hospital, but if we can fully vaccinate, then we can actually vaccinate our way out of this epidemic and halt transmission. And we still haven't quite caught up with all of that messaging yet. And I think that's, that's what you're going to start to see. 
So I know you grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, which to me is very much on the line of Red Sox fandom, this direction, and Yankee fandom, I suppose. There are a few Met fans somewhere in Connecticut, but like, yeah, my, uh, my parents well, we from the Bronx, right? We, we, we just don't, don't even talk to them. My, well, my dad's from the Bronx, so you know where I came from oh, okay. on this one. Yes, my parents both grew up, uh, Pelham Parkway was the exit to yeah. get over there. So. Yeah, 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 same, same. So um, my... Um, <laughs> My um yeah my dad went to DeWitt uh, DeWitt Clinton High School and City College and oh yeah real the real Bronx experience yes my dad went to Bronx Bronx Science and then right. he left to go to Cooper Union but of course he stayed right you just commuted to Cooper Union right anyway, but right. that was far yeah. so technically I was a Yankees fan. But then I went through this period for some reason when I was a little kid. I loved the Oakland A's uniforms from the late 60s, Kansas mm-hmm. City A's, Oakland A's. Mm-hmm. So I was a Charlie Finley, Kansas City A's, <laughs> Oakland A's fan. Which, and people made fun of me terribly because they were in the bot, they were in the cellar every yep. every year reliably. Mm-hmm. But then I saw it sort of took this up as a cause. You know, you had to, <laughs> I think that's how I got interested in neglected tropical diseases. You know, <laughs> you know somebody had to champion the Oakland A's. And, Yes, Oakland A's, hookworm, right? right Just birds right. of a feather there. Yes. So, right, right, right. Um, and so now that you've been in Texas for a while, though, you met is the Astros serve. You've adopted them as your local team. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an Astros fan. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I've been severely tested, right, with the Yankees and the Astros, yes. right? So that's. Oh, great. yeah. There's no bad blood or anything between those no, right, two right. at all. So when you're growing up, who were some of your favorite players? Uh, Yankees or A's, I guess, them. Although the Kansas City A's didn't give you a whole lot of players to really grab onto I guess. So when I was a kid, my older brother who passed away prematurely unfortunately, but we used to have this game called Be a Manager and then Stratomatic. I don't know if you of remember course. all that. Yeah. I know I know Stratomatic for sure. So um yeah, so I mean I remember the Yankees of the sixties, right? Horace Clark and mm-hmm. I think Bobby Richardson was still with him. Mantle was yep. still with them. So yep. and my dad would take us to the game and so that was that was that was really exciting. Um and and I love the fast runners, the base runners. So uh, Roberto Campaneris, yes, Bert Campaneris. Campaneris, yep. And I got to meet him when I was a kid, and uh, because you know you go to the game and then you you ask for autographs, and mm-hmm. I was and I, there was Bert Campaneris. Mr. Campaneris, Mr. Campaneris, <laughs> totally blew me off. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and Reggie, of course, Reggie, of course, played with the A's then. Oh yes. Well. So that was that was pretty easy. I I still remember as a kid watching him in the All Star game. Remember mm-hmm. in Detroit where he he almost hit it completely out of the ballpark mm-hmm. and he hit the lights and it's like five hundred feet or could be oh, projected yeah. as something ridiculous. That was yep legendary. That that, that impressed me. That impressed. Me. Yes, I was. I caught the tail end of the Reggie period in New York. It was just mm-hmm. coming of age as a baseball fan. I was born seventy three, right? So ages six, seven, eight. Well, so when I was in medical school, I um I went to uh, Cornell and Rockefeller in the Upper East Side for mm-hmm. my MD and PhD. We'd go take the subway and go to Yankee Stadium, and mm-hmm. that was real. That was pretty exciting then. Yeah. Now, have you been to New Yankee Stadium? I have for a game. I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, uh, I, I was, hear it's I was, great. I hear it's great, but I haven't. It is. Completely different. I, as, oh, really? Because it you, sort of looks the same, right? But it's from the outside. I mean, on the one hand, it is you lose the cramped concourses of the old one, mm-hmm. right? It's not so right. dark. On the other the hand, post. It, remember the posts? Those big posts. Yes. Had, yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. On the other hand, it is very. I find it very corporate. Um, you know, it was accommodated to not just seat a lot of people, but to sell a lot of things to a lot of people, which I understand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's baseball's a business. I well, get it. it's the transition of New York, right? When I was getting yeah. my MD PhD in the eighties, New York 
Manhattan still had some grit to it. Yes. And, some, <laughs> and the bookstores on Forest Street and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> and then it sort of became an island of rich people. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it is a very different place now. So, and do you get a chance to visit? You said you go to you, pre-pandemic. You go to uh, you would go to Minute Maid regularly for games. Yeah, I'd go to Minute Maid, and, and even, well, I haven't been to, as I said, I haven't been to a ball game in the Northeast in a while. But I still Minute Maid's a Minute Maid's a great park. I like it's, it quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Really it's got a good yeah. feel. It's got a good vibe to it too. Yeah, they did um, pre-pandemic at least. Well, I believe they resumed this spring, but it's before I was traveling. But they would do a sixteen college tournament there while the major league before the major league season started. It was great. So I'm here at this really nice major league park and a great venue, and I get to scout some college players and see what it would look like on a major league right. field. I wish more facilities would do that. Only a few were able to, um, right. but it's great. It's great for the kids too. When I was on the Yale faculty, um, mm -hmm. I would take the kids to New Britain Fall Park. And that was a nice ballpark too. Minor yes, league. yeah. Some of these uh, some of these minor league ballparks are extraordinary, right? I mean, yeah, that is. Um, I, they had an independent team, so that team, I don't know. It don't was know an Eastern League team for a yeah. while. Now that's yeah. Hartford, which plays in a spectacular ballpark oh, that really? is actually in the city limits. Oh, I saw uh, that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I saw that. Dunkin' Donuts Park. It is. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, it was a lot of money and it was very controversial. It took a long time to get built, but I will simply say the fan experience. Yeah. Years and years ago, we had a farm team of the Milwaukee Braves. I think it was the Hartford Chiefs. It was called. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, that'd be all oh, the Milwaukee Braves. That'd be going quite yeah. a bit back. Yeah. Um, yes. But if you ever do get back up there, I will say uh, the Hartford Yard Goats is the team. The park is from the fan goats? experience. It is spectacular. Yes. Because um, yard goats are so indigenous to Hartford. Yes, right? We have, yeah, it's what we have now. Sod poodles and yard goats and trash pandas and mm -hmm. jumbo shrimp. That's what, those are minor league team names now. So you know the origin of the term Yankees? I, I don't know that I do. So uh, being, a, you know, from Hartford mm -hmm. and reading about the history. So when um, the first, the first um, colonists that came in were from, from Holland, from Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And they would see um, the Brits, the English, rowing up the the East River, the Hudson River, mm -hmm. and the Dutch would taunt them, mm -hmm. and they would call them little junkies, little Johnnies, yeah. little junkies, mm -hmm. little Yankees. So that's where it, that's where it came from. Ah, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, so last question before I let you go, you, I, I said, as I said at the top, you have a um, you have two books. Your newest book is Preventing the Next Pandemic, and um, I've read your first book, Vaccines Not Cause Racial Autism, which is fantastic. It really does a great job of laying bare the emptiness of the arguments of the anti-vaxxers. But so in the new book, uh, which I have not had a chance to read yet, but what are there any lessons that we have taken from the last year plus that you know would apply to, you know, do we have hope to prevent the next pandemic? We didn't prevent this one. And I think there were some clear public policy mistakes we can see now in hindsight. So what can we take from this um, this experience of this pandemic that might help us prevent the next one? Yeah, well, the thing is we do learn from every pandemic. So after the original SARS in 2002, 2003, we put in international health regulations, which were very important in, for this one. And then after H1N1 pandemic flu in 2009, we put in the global health security agenda. And after Ebola in 2014, they met at Davos and created the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation help finance vaccines. So we do learn things with each pandemic, but this, of course, is sort of the mother of them all. And and I think 
among the things we now realize is maybe we're a little too dependent on the multinational pharma companies. We need to have more local indigenous production of vaccines. Right now, no vaccines are made on the African continent. Um, Latin America chronically underachieves, and the Middle East does too. And it's not a question of just money. I mean, the, I mean, there's no vaccines made in most of the wealthy sovereign nation states in, in the Middle East. So I think that's a lesson that we've got to build that capacity. And that's not fast because making vaccines is not the same as small molecule drugs. It's years and years of training to know how to scale up production, doing it under a quality umbrella, quality control, quality assurance, and national regulatory authority. I think that's that's an important um, lesson for building for the future so we have more access to vaccines. Also, stop trying to do this on the cheap um, <laughs> because, you know, let's face it, right now Africa is not being vaccinated, Latin America barely. And um, so, you know, getting the G20 leaders to to understand that this is not just a public health issue, it's a security issue, it's an economic issue. If they haven't gotten it by now, you know, you'd, you'd think they would. So be willing to invest more, that's gonna be important. Also combating the anti-vaccine, anti-science aggression because it's, it's no longer mom and pop organizations. These are well-oiled, well-funded machines that dominate the internet, these anti-vaccine groups. And now, you know, we've got the Russian government, you know, the US and British intelligence has found that the Putin government has been lobbying this whole program of what's being called weaponized health communication to stable to destabilize democracies, to use this as a wedge issue to divide the country and it's working, unfortunately. So standing up to the anti all the Russian anti-science aggression, that that's got to be done. So I had a paper come out in Nature magazine that really set off the anti-vaxxers because <laughs> what I said was true. I mean, yes. that, that that this is a full-on anti-science empire and we've got to look at what are our options to, to, to dismantling it because it's, you know, when you look at the 600,000 Americans who've lost their lives in this past year, yes, it was due to the SARS coronavirus type two, but it was also due to, to defiance, defiance against masks and social distancing and now vaccines. So anti-science is a killer. And, and, and that I'm having a hard time convincing people of that we need to build in infrastructure to combat the anti-science just like we did to counter global terrorism or, or nuclear proliferation or cyber attacks. It's, it's reached that level at this point. Um, so I tend to be an outlier on, on that one so far. My guest today has been Dr. Peter Hotez. You can find him on Twitter at Peter Hotez, H-O-T-E-Z. He's the author of two books, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism and Preventing the Next Pandemic. And he is also one of the most important voices out there right now in combating anti-science and particularly anti-vaccine views. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Was, uh, and my my first time I've been able to get to talk about baseball on a podcast. And <laughs> I'll never forget that that thrill. Perfect. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. And if you haven't, please go out and get that vaccine. <laughs>